where we find our beginning tonight is very interesting. There's no mention of Mary and Joseph, no mention of a manger, no mention of an angel, or, you know, lambs or camels or wise men or anything like that. Mark decides to start his gospel basically saying, hey, listen, there's a famous prophecy in Isaiah 40. And this famous prophecy says that there's going to be a guy who comes to make the way of the Lord. Almost like an engineer planning out a road. It's not just he's going to talk about Jesus. He is actually going to set a path for our Lord to come. He is going to pave a way. He is going to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he will do these great things. And John the Baptist is so important, and this prophecy from Isaiah is so important, that actually three of the four other Gospels mention it as well. And so, it says in verse 4, John was that person. John came. It says that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, just like that. And, and if we read the other Gospels, we get a great picture of who this person was. So allow me to do a summary, if you will. First, we know uh, his parents were fairly old when they had him. His parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, were older. They thought they were beyond the age of having children, but God blessed them with children. We learned that in Luke chapter 1. Uh, we also know that because of that story, he's a few months older than Jesus. Uh, he was a Levite, or at least comes from a family line of Levites. It says in the book of Luke that his mother traced her lineage all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother. Uh, a very, very godly family. Because of this, we can always, or we can probably also assume he had a really good education. And this kind of gets rid of the background of thinking he was a crazy person out in the woods. Hey, both of his parents were, were in the line of priests, and his, his father was a high priest. And in odds are, he probably had a very, very robust education theologically and otherwise. Not some random person, like I said, who comes onto the scene, but probably a very well-versed well in theology and Old Testament tradition and Jewish tradition. We also know from his birth story, uh, according to the angel Gabriel, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't just a teacher. This isn't just a prophet. This is someone whom God has sent for a special purpose and occasion. I've mentioned this before about the Old Testament and about before Pentecost with the Holy Spirit. But if you weren't aware, the Holy Spirit was not something everyone had before Acts chapter 2. God sent it to people for special purposes and special occasions. We learn this throughout the Old Testament. One of the biggest ones uh, we see is when Saul becomes king. God gives him the Holy Spirit, and then when Saul doesn't do what he was supposed to do, it says that the Spirit of God leaves Saul. So when we see the Holy Spirit, it's not just something we not that we take it for granted, but we think of it as something a bit more normal because we live in a post-Pentecost world. But this was a very, very special mantle on John the Baptist. And so, we know he wore simple clothes. He wore simple, in, in the tradition of Elijah, in the tradition of, of the great prophet, he wore simple clothing. He ate locusts and wild honey. Um, so as we think about this, think about who this guy probably was. Odds are, in my opinion, he was probably more like a monk who left behind great wealth to pursue God. If you think about it, there's a guy, um, if you've ever heard of the Jesuits, then if you've ever heard of the Pope, the Pope is a Jesuit. The guy that started the Jesuits is kind of like this. He was very, very, his name was St. Ignatius. He was very, very wealthy, very well thought of, and left it all to pursue God and follow the poor and live for the poor and live a simple life. Kind of how I think about John the Baptist. He probably had pretty good means coming from a great family. And because of the calling God put on his life, he decided to live very simply and do this thing God had called him to. And so, in verse 4 through 8, we see that he appeared and he was preaching. 
What was he preaching? Well, it says he was re- preaching a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Immediately, with my intelligent um, people we have here, you say, well, I thought only Jesus could forgive sins. Uh, yes, that is true. But what John was using uh, baptism for, it wasn't as we think of sort of, you know, the app. The absolvement of sins, or saying your sins are forgiven. What John was simply doing was using baptism, like the same way we do now, as a physical sign of repentance. He wasn't physically forgiving people's sins. Only God can do that. But it was a ceremonial washing. See, in, in, in the ancient world, Israelites had all these ceremonial washings, and we learn about that in the uh, turning water to wine thing, when Jesus had all those big pots, those little pots for ceremonial washing. It, it, but usually they're just parts of the body. They were the hands, they were the feet, they were the head, they were all these different things. But what John was doing that was so powerful is he was actually immersing people in water to show their repentance. It's almost like a ceremonial washing for their whole body. And, and the Jews, the reason John was so revolutionary with his baptism was because the Jews wouldn't do this. The Jews would just have the little ceremonial washings. The only person who would get dunked, so to speak, was a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew. So for people to go out to the wilderness, to, to, to this man, to this prophet, and get dumped was a very, very big sign. It was a very big outward sign. They were repenting. They were acknowledging that they had run from God. And so John's baptism uh, would not have been taken lightly from among the people. It would have been a very, very powerful, powerful sign of honest and repentant people. He was encouraging people to confess their sins and return away from God. He said, listen, the reason we do this is not because he's the Messiah, but because the Messiah is coming, and that we should be ready. In fact, the Messiah is so great, and, and, and he's so powerful and so mighty, I am not even worthy to stoop down and be his servant and untie his sandals. And then we have verses 9, 10, and 11. Jesus shows up at the river even though he didn't need to repent. I don't know about you if you've ever asked this question, but I remember asking this question, why in the world did Jesus get baptized? I mean, he didn't need to repent of his sin. All these, all these Israelites were repenting of their sin and kind of getting a fresh start and, and, and publicly confessing that they want to return to following God, but Jesus never said, why would he get baptized? And in fact, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus and John, Matthew records a conversation where John sees Jesus coming and says, well, what are you doing here? You should be baptizing me. I'm not going to baptize you. You, you baptize me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm coming to you the same way all of these people are coming to you. To publicly solidify that I desire to be with God. To proclaim my heart in the sight of everyone here. See, Jesus didn't have to be baptized. But if we think about Easter, Jesus also didn't have to give his life either. He did it freely. He did it to, to, to be recognized with the people and to side with the people. Jesus got baptized to identify with the people he was going to minister to. Jesus got baptized to show the people, hey, listen, I am making a public profession as a Jewish person, as a rabbi, that we are all in this together. And then something amazing happens. Something that is so powerful to me. It says that the Holy Spirit came down like a dove and rested on him. Empowering him for his mission and his life. If you think about the, the two or three verses there, it's really cool. Because it gives like three really normal details. Jesus, 
come down in, in Galilee. Just basic stuff. This is just some guy shows up to you because it's kind of a common name around this time. He's from kind of a small backwoods town, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And then, oh, and by the way, heavens are torn apart and the Spirit comes down on him. And, and we hear the voice of God audibly, and it's not a message of condemnation. It's not a message of don't mess up or else, you know, whatever. It is love. And not only is this an amazing scene we're all familiar with, uh, we all know this happened, and we all are familiar with this story. I want to point something out that I find most remarkable about this. Here we have Jesus coming to Bethlehem. He's baptized, and, and, and I picture it as, as he comes up out of the water, right, the heavens split open, and the Spirit comes down on him like a dove. And, and I confess this is not my thought. I read this somewhere else. But we have something that's kind of unique in Scripture. We have the Trinity in action together, but also separate. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all separate, doing a different role and a different task, but unified in their mission together. We have the Trinity sort of in action. We have the Trinity, three unique entities, but one God, all at once. It's amazing to me. I sometimes kind of wonder, what would it have been like to have seen that? Yeah, if there was anyone else there. It says that there were people there, but they marveled at everything. In some of the other gospels, and I think, man, could you imagine how obnoxious that would be if your like, grandfather was one of those people? Every time the family gets together, he tells about the time he saw this great event happen. And then, and then this kid is the guy that's like, well, did you ever hear my grandpa's story about Jesus being God? That's like, yes, we've heard it. You have to stop talking about it. I don't think if I saw this, I could ever stop talking about it. Physical manifestations of the triune God, all separate and united together. It would have been amazing. And so I say this to, to remind us, as Christmas comes around, that Jesus was the Son of God. And Jesus wasn't the Son of God in a lesser version or a diminished version of God. He wasn't a piece of God. He wasn't half of God or part of God. Sometimes we I don't know if you know subconsciously, I do. Um, sometimes I, I, I think I kind of trick myself into thinking I don't understand it, so what if Jesus was just half God? Uh, but, but he wasn't. To understand Christmas and to understand Advent, we understand that he was fully God and fully man. And here we see the third element of God as well, the Holy Spirit coming down on him like a dove, empowering Jesus for his ministry, ministry that would eventually reconcile you and me to our God. And aside from Mark's jam-packed theological truth Mark uses here, the best thing about this is the language that God uses. As I said, it's not language of judgment. It's not language of, you know, I am God, worship me, or anything. It's just a language of love. He says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. Isn't that kind of what we all want to hear? And I confess as someone uh, who has always had issues with God the Father, not knowing my, um, my earthly father. This is something I've always wanted to hear, too. But what's amazing is, is we're all in this boat. No matter where we come from, no matter our relationship with our families, we all want to hear this. You know, this week I was having a conversation with a friend. We're sitting down having lunch, discussing some theology, some life, some lighthearted things, some really, really heavy things. And at one point, I'm sitting across from this man, and he just laughs. And I said, what? And he said, this may seem a bit cynical and a bit dark, 
I said, well, what is it? And he said, do you ever wonder why God bothers with us? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, really? Why did God go through all that? Why did God go through all this trouble? Constantly sending prophets, constantly sending judges, constantly intervening, constantly trying to help. And we just keep rebelling over and over and over again. Even with Christmas, you think, why in the world would God send himself to earth, knowing full well that when we see the manger, he saw the cross? Why would God do this? Now, it wasn't so dark and so cynical and depressing. But it is a thought, I think, if we're honest, many of us have had and I'm not saying that we're a burden for God. Don't hear, don't hear me say that. What I realize, though, in relation to this sermon and in this text, when we hear and the desire to hear, you are my beloved son or daughter, the reason we can't always hear that is because we see the world and the world doesn't line up with that. Because we see the fallen world around us and we realize that's not our experience. We've been let down by people we love. We've been lied to. We've been hurt. This is why, if you look at movies and books, there's so many things out there about parental acceptance, aren't there? Like, there's, there's nothing more tearful, maybe this is an American thing, there's nothing more tearful and emotional than, like, a movie about a father and a son, and, and, and a distant father, and he drank and was angry and everything, and then at the end of his life, he finally tells his son that he's proud of him, and everyone cries, and it's such a great movie. This is why we hear stories about reconciliation and what we desire to know that and to feel that. But this is not the case here. God says this to Christ, and he says it to us. He's never been an absentee father. He's never been judgmental. He's never been hurtful. He's never not been there for us. He's never been disappointed. He's always there. I think of the story of the prodigal son. And I know I quoted some song lyrics last week, but if you'll allow me to do the same this week. I'd like to. There's a song, um, I can't listen to it without getting teary. Uh, it, it's about the prodigal son, but it's through the eyes of the father. It, and it goes like this. It, this is essentially God saying this. And now you've hit bottom. All those open doors have shut. Your hungry stomach's tied at knots. But I know what you're thinking. That you've troubled me enough. But nothing can ever separate you from my love. And I still stand here waiting, with my eyes fixed on the road. And I fight back tears and wonder, if you're ever going to come home. Don't you know, son, that I love you, and I don't care where you've been. Yes, and I'll be right here waiting, until you come around the bend. And I'll run to you, and I'll hold you close, and I won't let go again. So please come home. Don't you know, son, that I love you, and I don't care where you've been. So please come home. So often when we think about the prodigal son, we think about our relationship to God, we only think about the son, and we think about ourselves and our own rebellion, and we think, gosh, I just got to get back to God. How often do we think about what God thinks of us? How often do we put ourselves in God's shoes, as weird as that may sound, and realize that this, I really truly believe, is his attitude toward me? I don't care where you've been. Please come home. Tonight, brothers and sisters, if you hear nothing else 
If you hear nothing else over Christmas and New Year's, and you don't go to church and you're not back at worshiping together, hear this here and now. God is pleased with you. God loves you. And if you have left him and gone off and run off into a far country to blow your inheritance, he is there waiting for you to return. He is a perfect, loving father waiting, looking out the window every morning. Is he coming home? Is she coming home? Wondering, waiting. And when I see the story of John the Baptist and Jesus being baptized, this is what I see. I see a perfect father displaying his perfect love to his son. Tonight is not an overly complex sermon topic. Jesus loves you, right? That being said, sometimes it's difficult even to admit this to ourselves. To admit that like John the Baptist was doing with Israel, we need to be led to repentance and we can accept the love of God. We need to admit fault. We need to admit that we need help. See, because when we confess and repent, the beauty of confession and repentance is that we look into ourselves and we see, wow, look at this mess. I can't do this on my own. And we turn to the cross and we see, wow, I don't have to do this on my own. See, Jesus is not just a helper, but he's the very source of our life. And then we realize that he is the source of our life, we begin to understand what the gospel means when it says that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. God sees you and says, this is my son, this is my daughter, with you I am well pleased. And so the reason John the Baptist came preaching repentance was not to get people to feel bad about themselves and to learn secrets about their sins or anything like that. It's so that people would see their need for God. But without repentance, we can't understand the cross. And I mean it when I say this, that Christmas is sort of a bittersweet thing. Because even though there's the manger and Christ comes to earth and we worship and we say it's so powerful, when, like I said earlier, when we see the manger, God saw the cross. And he said, yeah, I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to do this because I love you that much. As Christians, it's a difficult thing. But when we come to God in repentance and honesty, when we come to God like the Israelites to John the Baptist and say, hey, I need help. I need to start over. God says, yeah, this is my son whom I love. I'm very pleased with him. I'm very pleased with my daughter. I'm so proud of her. And that's why we celebrate. The light of the world come to lighten our path. Just pray with me. Lord, thank you. Lord, it's not a complex issue, but it's a difficult one. Give us the strength to trust you. Give us the faith to put our lives in your hands. Lord, you call us all home in this Christmas season. Let us not allow the days to go by and the celebration to go by without acknowledging the cross as well as the manger. desire to come home, a desire to be with you, with your spirit. But until that day comes, Father, give us grace and give us mercy and abundance. <laughs> we love you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. In your son's holy, precious name we pray. Amen.